0: Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of You Have to Watch This, an episode where I, Ted Ryan, and my co-host, Clayton Terry, get together in a room, (laughs) one person sits on a bed, one person sits in a office chair, I guess I'll call it that, and we talk about movies. We do, this is nice. It is nice. I haven't sat in this
1: new one. It is, it's a new
0: chair or it's an old chair, I don't know, I'm in someone else's room subletting for the semester uh but you didn't come here to listen to us talk about chairs it's about it's a podcast about movies after all and last week we discussed two films we talked about call me by your name and the good the bad and the ugly and Clayton, what are the two films that we recommended to each other
1: last week last week we said we would do kind of a pseudo sci-fi so we went with your name, not to be confused with Call Me by Your Name, Your Name Period, <laughs> the 2016 anime, and Eraser Head, David Lynch is first film.
0: Yeah, uh, yes, his first feature-length film.
1: Awesome. So you did the intro, so I believe I'm gonna flip the coin as to flip Which film? That coin. We will watch first. I touched the ceiling. I'm gonna do a double set. Heads. Heads is me. Um <laughs> because <laughs> <of> the- <laughs> me i was genuinely surprised i forgot uh it's gonna be a lax episode <laughs> yeah lazy um,
0: lazy september afternoon
1: yeah i um i think i want to talk about your name first i usually like to do it in the order we watched it but i finished your name in less than an hour ago because this week <laughs> has been fucking bananas <laughs> um so it's fresh and i want to keep it fresh so let's talk about your name
0: keep it fresh uh all right so this is the film that you recommended to me uh and this is a 2016 anime film from japan uh and i had heard about this film for some time um just in various circles and friend groups even friend groups that don't even watch anime they had recommended it to me so i was always on the back burner of mm-hmm. a film that i knew of Uh, and I'm really glad you recommended it to me. It was a really fun, cute
1: film. It was. So just a quick plot summary. As Ted mentioned, 2016 anime. Uh, Two strangers find themselves linked in a bizarre way. When a connection forms, will distance be the only thing to keep them apart? That was actually a really horrible (laughs) plot summary. (laughs) Basically, a boy and a girl start randomly switching bodies, and they don't know why. And that's how the film begins. It begins with a lot of mystery, which I think is part of... Uh, The draw towards it. Uh, I am quite a big fan of this movie. Ted, what did you think?
0: Uh, I really enjoyed it. You know, the one thing that I did hear about this film is that the boy and the girl keep swapping bodies. And I thought that's all what the movie was going to be. I did not expect the mystery adventure element to it. Um, You know, the film really starts as one thing and really grows into something bigger as it progresses
1: definitely so i first saw this movie about two years ago and the first thing i thought re-watching it was the first time i watched it i pirated it on my seven year old laptop clayton and watched it there and this time i actually bought it so not all heroes wear capes at least not at first <laughs> and um, I watched it on my TV, and the first thing I noticed was just how gorgeous this movie is. Uh, the shots of rural Japan as the comet comes in, or the shots of Tokyo and the trains and the moving people and the skyscrapers. It just so was visually dynamic and like brought me in in a way that not all anime films do. Uh, they're not always this giant scale feeling, not always this epic. That's
0: one thing that definitely grabbed me as
1: well is not only the quality
0: of the the picture, but the subtlety of the animation at work. Mm-hmm. One scene that really blew me away with how well it was rendered was um, there's a scene early on where one character is participating in a traditional J- Japanese ceremony of um, creating a... a rice uh based sake drink and these two characters are kind of like dancing around in these flowing robes and it is so well animated i was like is this rotoscoped like this is so impressive (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know just how the way their hair and the cloth dangles from them and how it folds inward on itself like shout out to the animation team on this one
1: Definitely, and I'm in an anime class right now, and the last few weeks we've been talking about different styles of anime, and the war between 2D and CGI, and within 2D kind of limited animation, which is a lot of stills, or you do maybe six images for every second as opposed to 24 for live action or like 12 i think it's closer to for typical animation so it was something i was paying attention to so while i was re-watching it i did a little bit of research and i found this great medium article that i'll link in the show notes but it talks about how the director Sinkai, he embraces cgi and he kind of makes the images look drawn the images that are cgi look drawn and then the drawn images have like the lens flare And it brings the 2D elements more so to life, so it creates kind of a coherent picture where you're like, that feels like that has to be 2D, or that is definitely CGI. You aren't thinking that while you're watching it. It all kind of blends together really beautifully.
0: Uh, That is one thing I did want to mention, is how well the 2D and 3D elements are blended together. Often when there's typically like mechanical objects or... Kind of like cityscapes are usually rendered in 3D in most anime products that I've seen. And it always feels like, oh, here are the characters drawn on top of the 3D render. Yeah. But it there was a lot of like great ways to blend the two together. Uh, one that sticks out in my mind is there's a shot where one character is standing atop a mountain. And there are clouds rolling <laughs> over the mountain. And you could tell that the clouds were hand-drawn. On top of, you know, the 3D model. And it was just, like, very beautifully done and very skillfully done. I was constantly impressed by the the style of the
1: film. And it didn't really win me over at first. But the longer I spent with it, the more I appreciated it. Definitely, yeah. I think visually, that's probably the strongest element of this film for me. How did you feel about uh, the actual plot? I enjoyed the plot. I was interested in the plot. I like the characters.
0: However, the film, I think, lacks, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but maybe drama. It lacks a certain energy. I think this is a very relaxing movie to watch. Yeah. The first act is very, like, conflict-less, and it's more mm-hmm. about the two characters figuring out what is going on and the funny things that happen as a result of swapping <laughs> bodies the second act is kind of the the male lead figuring out what happened to the girl and the third act is maybe don't go too much into spoilers just yet but the resolution of the story yeah and kind of the two coming together Mm -hmm. so i don't know
1: i i enjoyed it but i wasn't
0: captivated if that makes sense
1: yeah i think that's certainly fair uh, I don't know if it grabs you as much as other movies or other animes could. I think that is in part because it's kind of confusing. I remember being pretty confused the first time I watched this movie. And now the second time it was obviously on a rewatch. So I had to remember certain elements, but I also was like doing research as I was watching it. So I think about like one of the first scenes is when Taki wakes up in Mitsuha's body and Is like feeling her up and is shocked to be in a female's body. And then Mitsuha's sister comes in, it's like time for breakfast. And then Mitsuha comes down and it's back to Mitsuha like it's the next day. I was like, because and then her friends and family tell Mitsuha about all the crazy stuff that went down the day before. And I remember being so confused the first time I watched that. And now I watched it, and I was like reading the IMDb plot summary to like pay attention to that specific point, and I was like, oh, okay, I get it. But even the plot summary, it's like, somehow, Mitsuha's back in her body. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, man. Obviously, there are other elements of this film that are confusing, but that beginning, if you just take out that opening part that's mainly for humor, mainly just to set up the body-switching part, but you don't really need that, it would have been a lot more coherent. I disagree. I think that edit
0: is what was probably what grabbed my attention right off the bat and that disconnect from that very first scene to the next one, you know, and like what you just mentioned. I think because it leaves a lingering sense of mystery, like, what was that about? That doesn't doesn't really connect with the character we're seeing now. And then you find out the mystery along with the character. And I think when we finally see Taki the first time, like the way the premise is... Given to the audience, you know, I thought was really compelling and like interesting. You know, we start with Taki and Mitsuha's body for one scene, then the next day, Mitsuha figuring out something happened yesterday, mm-hmm. and then her and Taki's body, you know, like those three together. Like, I think that was awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could see that. I do, I do ultimately think I disagree though, because I think I still would have been interested if it was just Mitsuha going about her day and everyone's like that was so weird yesterday and then in her notebook she sees who are you and then she wakes up in Taki's body it's like they introduce Taki and then kind of abandon him for a little bit and then they reintroduce him later I'm like why not just wait why not stay with Mitsuha and naturally kind of go into that
0: I think I would like to see a cut of this film with maybe without those that scene and just without... I, could, I, could, I see it going both ways I think they yeah. both work in different ways
1: Yeah, it's not like enough to ruin the movie. It starts, in my opinion, starts the viewer off in a point of confusion based on editing. And maybe that's intentional, but it felt like unintentional confusion. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the humor also. Uh, We've talked about this before in reference to like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. But I thought the humor did kind of work for me in this movie, even when I watched the dub the first time I saw it I watched it subtitled and then now I watch the dub just to see both and I think about like (laughs) when Mitsuha's in Taki's body at first and it's talking about how she got lost on her way to school and she's like yep it's fun being in Tokyo as a boy (laughs) and it's just like such a weird thing to say that whole first sequence when mitsuha is in taki's body kind of reminded me of like scott pilgrim of like this feminine-esque male character bumbling his (laughs) way around a big city Um, and just like as his friends are talking staring at these two dogs while eating a bunch of food i don't know it felt like that scott pilgrim vibe that i kind of like but the other moment i think about when i think about how funny this movie can be is when Taki reawakens in Mitsuha's body at kind of like a pivotal moment so he's crying in her body and her sister opens the door and he's still touching Mitsuha's boobs and crying and like freaking out and just that I don't know that juxtaposition I thought was funny
0: there yeah I um I I I think a lot of the humor worked for me as well uh and I think that definitely is helped by there's a really great supporting cast of friends yeah um For both of the protagonists. And um, I loved uh, Mitsuha's friends. Like those two. Yeah, they were fun. I don't remember their names. But um, they were great. And there was a lot of fun dialogue and dynamics happening. And it was always fun seeing the relationships between the person and their actual body compared to the wrong person in the body. You know, like Mm -hmm. how they interact with them and how it changes over time. Yeah.
1: Really fun. And the aspects that the people around them like and dislike about this new person. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you know, like when Taki is in
0: Mitsuha's body, uh, she's way more athletic and rougher and kind of a not a scoundrel, but a, a rascal, yeah. you know, and you know, certain people like that more about her and back and forth. And, you know, Taki's feminine side coming through.
1: Yeah, definitely. Are there any other aspects about the movie generally that you want to talk about before we move into more spoilers?
0: The main thrust of the film is really the two main characters' relationship towards each other and how they help each other out when they're in their own bodies and when that ends, um, how they continue to try and help each other um, and how that grows into a romance. What did you think of the romance?
1: I like it because I like the two characters, but I also don't know... If there's enough there to have a relationship start. I wonder if, like, me switching bodies with someone (laughs) would be enough to, like, fall for them.
0: It's like, oh, I know how you pee. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I I think the film, like, I really enjoyed their relationship as friends, you know, and how they would leave notes to each other. And then... At some point in the film, they develop romantic feelings for each other, despite never actually meeting in person, and I feel like when the romance kind of kicks off, it's like, oh, oh, okay, you know, like I, that was probably the most jarring part to me as a viewer, because I don't feel like I felt the same emotions as they did.
1: I I like the beginning of their relationship when genuine anger towards one another turns to like friendship and i like the end when they're more committed i'm trying not to avoid spoilers when it is more romantic but i don't like that in between i don't like how we got to friends too romantic right i like both aspects of both of those relationships but i don't like the bridge between them mm-hmm.
0: i think for me that's the weakest part of the film that mm-hmm. shift in their relationship
1: yeah yeah that's definitely fair
0: we're trying to dance around beat around the bush Uh, but should we jump into spoiler territory?
1: I think it's spoiler territory. Let's talk about that third act and, uh, some of the themes of this film.
0: The big reveal at the maybe hour mark of the film is that, uh, they suddenly stop swapping bodies, uh, and they begin to forget aspects of each other when, you know, through the notes they leave and their, their name, their, the memory begins to fade As if it never happened at all. But there are lingering elements of, you know, proof that this actually happened. And suddenly Taki finds out that the town Itamori that Mitsuha lives in was wiped out by a comet meteor strike three years ago. And he has to discover a way to try and reestablish his connection to her and save the town and his loved ones in that town,
1: yeah, exactly. I think this movie, there is kind of that lull in the middle. I definitely picked up on that. But once he kind of comes to that realization and we get to that point, uh, I'm kind of back in and engaged. And I like the sequence of Taki and then eventually mitsuha trying to convince the town of this incoming comet, while well, it's like visually in the background uh, and all the dimensions of time that they're playing with. Uh, I really wasn't expecting that time travel would kind of be a part of this movie too, and I think that's really interesting. I've only seen maybe two body-switching movies, (laughs) Freaky Friday being the other one. I've been avoiding making a joke about Freaky Friday
0: this entire time.
1: (laughs) That's all I've been thinking about. (laughs) There was the one Letterboxd review for It where it was like, that Chinese restaurant sequence was the scariest thing i've seen since jamie lee curtis and Lindsay lohan switched bodies because uh, that was also in a chinese restaurant i guess uh, i think they switched bodies because of like a fortune cookie they're an ancient chinese curse is put on them because they forget to tip uh movies just couldn't help but be racist back then <laughs> yeah. it was 2003 can you can you blame them blame them <laughs> uh, good lord yeah, I, I do think it still keeps my interest through that part.
0: Yeah, I think um, that reveal kind of like,
1: you know, switches the
0: gears of the movie and it becomes much more of a, like it was kind of a mystery in a fun way before and then it becomes kind of way more serious. And I think the added weight of this incoming disaster kind of added a new light to their relationship that I did appreciate and like I think it made them value their connection even more definitely especially in that he's trying to prevent said disaster from happening
1: and we talked about in the non-spoiler section uh, about their romantic relationship but her falling down and then opening up her hand and Taki didn't write his name but he wrote I love you and then them forgetting each other and eventually bumping into each other again in Tokyo that all resonated with me and the themes of memory and is memory the one thread we have to the people we love and kind of that longing it resonated with me the first time and the second time and I don't know if I can articulate it super well but it brings this movie above just being a body switching movie you know what I mean Mm -hmm. it Brings it into a new echelon with those themes. It uses the body swapping thing
0: to start something, but it's not a body swapping movie. Yeah. And kind of building off that, I really appreciated that. They never really try to explain it. No. Um, The closest that happens is that the grandma of Mitsuha suggests that she had similar experiences when she was young. But that's not really a big thing it's just a small conversation and i'm glad like we never got that scene where it's like i'm not mitsuha like they kind of like go along with it mm-hmm. and they don't try to explain it to anyone
1: yeah and i think a lot of great movies do that they don't bother with the explanation like groundhog day comes to mind or it's like that just happens to him and then well wow. not not so
0: much an explanation in like how's this actually happening in the universe but like them explaining it to their peers oh I see what you mean like that type of dialogue yeah
1: because that's always so frustrating to watch we've talked about this I think off mic but when it's like you know something and the characters don't it's like why bother (laughs) why am I watching this them just figure it out we already know as an audience so you should always be revealed information the same time characters are or at least close to the same time Unless it plays into some broader theme that's a central aspect of the film. So I'm glad it was also left out.
0: Yeah. Like I said before, I watched the dubbed version.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Did not think the music was that great. The
1: music was pretty bad. Pretty
0: bad. I didn't want to say it, but embarrassing.
1: <laughs> the score was good, I think. Yes, definitely. Because um, that was obviously carried over. The soundtrack... They got an English band to do it. It seems like not like uh, the UK, but a band that sings in English, <laughs> as opposed to the original uh, band that did it. A in Welsh Germany. band. Possibly. A Welsh band. <laughs> it was actually the Clash. <laughs> oh God, are they? Yes, they have to be. Their album is called London Calling. Is that the name of their album or is that a song? Oh my God! You're asking the wrong person. My friend Matt is gonna be so angry at me. <laughs> um. Yeah. Who cares?
0: So yeah, this Welsh band is playing, and it just felt like. Every, every song that came up, I was just like, oh, like, how obvious, you know, just like, we're singing about the plot that's happening, you know, it's like no
1: subtext at all. The fact that it was in English almost made it worse. (laughs) Because it was just like Japanese and it was just like words I can't understand. I think I would have I
0: love you because I'm so far apart. (laughs) It's like...
1: (laughs) end this please (laughs) please god it's like oh cool they have an intro song and then they do it again it's like oh this is a thing i was not expecting
0: that little intro sequence that was like the opening to a tv show like i was like what is this
1: (laughs) yeah it's like a snapchat i'm just like question mark it's funny in the anime class right now we're looking at like early anime and tetsuka who obviously did Astro Boy and arguably started anime, definitely arguably, uh, was a huge Disney fan. So some of the stuff he worked on is really like, leans on Disney with like unnecessary songs and characters <laughs> that don't need to be singing, uh, breaking into song for no reason. And it seems like that borrowing has almost continued into anime. I feel like I see songs often, <laughs> like randomly thrown into different anime movies
0: uh i have a much smaller exposure than you to anime films so yeah maybe i i'm sure there's some threads of that that yeah linger on mm-hmm. in the in the art form
1: mm. just interesting now that it's cool to see some of the more well-known modern animes while well, going back and revisiting some of the first ones i think it's cool to draw lines between the two much like how time is a line that joins everything in a, in a braid. In a braid. <laughs> <laughs> time is... In a cord. Time is <laughs> time is cords that are uh, on top of each other.
0: Sometimes. Wrapped around. Yeah. In a little bracelet. That's time for you. Wow. You should... Should have been called. Don't you think there would have time would've... is a bracelet, <laughs> not your name.
1: Don't you think there would have been something for either of them? You're really proud of that one, aren't you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't you think there should there should have?
1: <laughs> not really. <laughs> Don't you think there should have been something for either of them that tells them that they're three years off their current time?
0: <laughs> yeah, the whole time they have the cell phones and they're leaving notes. Did they never check the date? (laughs) Like, yeah. Did they never try and leave an email, you know? Yeah.
1: Or even on their phone, wouldn't one of them have to go back three years? I'm looking at my phone right now,
0: and it says 627, Friday, September 27th. Oh, that's that's weird. (laughs) You
1: just exposed how quickly we turned this around. (laughs) So, this movie's a fraud. (laughs) (laughs) I guess um, when you're thinking about a movie. When you're talking about a movie whose time travel slash body swapping happens because of a comment, maybe these aren't worth analyzing too deeply, but I was thinking about it. I'm talking about Cinema Sins. We're going to need a little oh. bell ding. Ding. <laughs> Got to extend this video so we get two ads <laughs> out of it. Woo! <laughs> 20 minutes of... I shouldn't make fun of other people's content. Why don't we move into Eraserhead?
0: <laughs> Eraserhead. It's a film by David Lynch. What more do we need to say? Clayton, you... What? You I have made... to watch this. <laughs> you have to watch this, and you watched it. We watched watched it together like nine days ago or something, I don't know, mm-hmm. last Saturday. What did you think of David Lynch's
1: 1977 breakout film, Eraserhead? So I guess going into it, I knew it was Lynch, so I knew it would be weird. I knew it would be kind of ethereal, but I thought he worked his way up to that. I thought he got to a point where he got a blank check and then could kind of make the weird stuff he loves to make around probably mid-Twin Peaks and then after that. I realized very quickly with this movie that Lynch has been weird since day one, (laughs) since 77. He has been making movies that are, I guess this is the only one I've seen, but I imagine they're all confusing in a good way. So uh, me and my brother Ryan, who we do the Terry Talks podcast together, we always <laughs> gotta get that plug in gotta every get that episode. plug <laughs> gotta get that plug um you can find my art <laughs> at these five <laughs> times <laughs> oh so you can plug <laughs> you can plug at the end i get two plugs i edit the podcast um <laughs> he always my brother ryan always jokes that <laughs> my brother ryan <laughs> i'm trying to make it so i can cut that if i want to <laughs> my brother ryan always jokes that We're going to watch Eraserhead and he's going to be like, that was amazing. And I'm going to be like, that was dumb. And then we'll give it the same rating of a four out of five on Letterboxd. And I did give it a four out of five, but I actually quite enjoyed this movie. I enjoyed just the experience of being uncomfortable by this movie and trying to figure out what Lynch was telling me, but also what I was trying to tell me, what I was projecting onto this movie and allowing that to be an accurate interpretation
0: Yes, that is, that hits the, the nail on the head of what I love about David Lynch's films and media. He always has, you know, personal meaning to everything that he puts to screen, puts to music, puts to sound. Uh, but the most important thing from his products is that every interpretation is valid and that it's more about what you feel during the film. And his films resonate with me in a way that no other director does it it's a certain type of terror and nausea and lust and disgust that you know permeates every 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 aspect of the film and with all of his things and with all great art you really have to give yourself fully into the artist's hands and you just have to trust the on the ride that they're going to take you. And I've seen a racer head before, I think two years ago and I loved it. Then watching it a second time,
1: I was like an absolute love and artistic bliss. Talk a little bit more about that. What do you think it is about the discomfort that he pushes onto his viewers that draws you in? What is so
0: uncomfortable about his films is that they take the everyday and the mundane and expose the terror that is always present, that is always felt, and we ignore. The scene that comes to mind is... That would be a good example of this from the film, is there's a scene where our protagonist, played by Jack Nance, who goes by the name Henry... But we'll just call him a racer head. He goes to his girlfriend's house for dinner. uh, Her family's house. And it's a... You know, it's this image of... You know, American, suburban, or urban living. You know, a nice... A nuclear family having dinner together. But it is this terrifying, uncomfortable, awkward exchange... Where it feels like every character is not really responding to the other person like they respond but it's like they're on different worlds you know everyone's in their own headspace everyone is miserable and lonely and it's just it's just sorrow you know it's sorrow and happiness and how like in life you know it's never just all good or just all bad it's mixed together there are terrifying things happening But at the same time, there are moments of happiness sprinkled within. It's the full tapestry of life in its
1: emotional reality. See, I would disagree because I don't think there is any happiness in this movie. I think what he's doing, and again, it's David Lynch, so every interpretation is correct and incorrect. Um, No, just correct. I think he's taking what's inside out and what's outside in. So this nuclear family... The process of having a child and raising that child. In culture, these are exclusively portrayed as positive things, basically. And there's nothing positive for Henry when he's going to visit his girlfriend's family. There's nothing positive about raising that child. It's exclusively the sorrow and fears that we feel inside. And it forces us to look at them for an hour and 28 minutes or however long this movie is. I think I I misspoke earlier. I was, you know,
0: when I was talking earlier, I was picturing the larger filmography of David Lynch. Mm -hmm. But I think even despite the misery of this film, there are still moments, you know, glimpses of hope. You know, I'm picturing the the girl in the radiator, Mm -hmm. you know, his dreams of a better life somewhere else, something better than this um and just even though this character's going through so much you know he can still smile
1: interesting I like that I I don't know if that's how I would interpret it but I think there is value and if later on in his filmography we do see those glimpses of happiness I think that is definitely a important interpretation
0: and one one of the aspects why I love this film and most of his work is that In Eraserhead, you see the beginnings of his visual language and visual vocabulary that continues all throughout his career as a filmmaker. Twin Peaks is, you know, the original show is definitely one of my favorite shows of all time. And Twin Peaks The Return is the best piece of visual media I'll ever engage in in my entire life. And nothing will ever come close to that. And, you know, Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive... You see these, all these visual motifs and elements and themes, and you can trace it all back to Eraserhead. You know, electricity and the fear of the industrialized world, the loneliness and the desolation of modern life, the American society, labor, the relationships of people within those societies, you know, it's... It really it's it's so breathtaking to feel like you can see all these themes trace back to his first film and he nails them all Mm -hmm. like and he
1: only continues to expand upon them moving forward definitely um real quick want to say we're probably not going to do a spoiler section because you can know everything that happens in this movie and still get the same amount of value out of it in my opinion um so, that said, I kind of want to hone in on one of those themes that you're talking about, and that's the theme of sex and fatherhood. So, I was curious what your interpretations regarding those two things of this film were.
0: I don't know if I have a concrete summary of my feelings on those two themes, but I think one takeaway that I have is that it seems as if most of the sex presented in the film always has a consequence and that things are worse off after they indulge in their primal natures. Mm -hmm. Um, The opening of the film could be read as a visual metaphor of insemination of the baby. The girl across the room, it leads him to feelings of self-loathing and self-pity and self-hatred Uh, After she discovers his baby on the desk and sees her with another woman, the relationship that he's forced into is one of misery and social obligation rather than of love. And I think perhaps what the film is trying to say is that sex is not a guarantee of love. Sex is sex. And if you treat it anything other than that, then you're setting yourself up for misery
1: definitely i think that's i think that's really interesting that definitely landed on some of the spots i landed at like i definitely think in that intro with the weird stringy things and the giant uh, sphere of the imagery of like sperm fertilizing an egg and just that overall horrifying nature of sex you use the example of uh, the woman in the radiator as like grass is always greener on the other side like this happiness that is possible. I think it's more like that allure of almost a woman that has yet to be deflowered in like a straight cis man's view and how he won't have that anymore because of his new relationship with his wife. He like lost that aspect. And that's obviously something horrifying to think about, but I do think it's playing into that with how, She appears to be a grown woman, but is acting very childish. She's singing, like... uh, I forget the song she sings, but, like, uh... Uh, it's, um... trying to remember
0: the song. But, yeah, she's... That character is one of, like, juxtaposition and, like, idiosyncrasies. And, like, a paradoxical character. She is the perfect woman yet she acts like a child and she has a strangely deformed face. What does that say about our character where the perfect woman looks like this? You know, I think Eraserhead's relationship with women is flawed and I think he doesn't see them as people.
1: Definitely, yeah. Um for the record, I just looked it up and it's in heaven. So, yes. In heaven. I was like I know, why do I know this song <laughs> I didn't know it was that old <laughs> not old enough to be in this movie
0: I got stuck in my head now yeah. in heaven
1: everything is fine oh, no. this movie's version <laughs> Um, <laughs> in my opinion every chance this film has it takes to make our character be viewed by us in a negative light and it takes to make our character's life miserable I think that that longing for the lady in the radiator is ultimately damaging to him and is feeding into our narrative that he is a problematic person to say the least (laughs) i you know it's like it's
0: it's i think it's easy to say he's problematic and despicable and he does have a lot of negative traits to his character but i think the way jack nance delivers that performance there is so much sadness in -hmm. his eyes and it's such a nuanced subtle performance that i can't help but also root for him and feel bad for this person you know like it's almost as if this person never had a true chance at life just from where he lives and the people he interacts with you know it's just
1: a kind soul in hell. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say kind soul, but I'm willing to lean into like the sadness argument of his character. I definitely see that at points. I think you're right. I
0: don't think it's we can. I don't think it's fair to paint him just as yeah. You know, a, a misogynist. I think it's
1: a flawed I'm, character in a flawed world.
0: Exactly, and that could segue into two other things I would like to talk about. One, the performances, and two, the visuals. What would you like to talk
1: about? Uh, Let's start with the performances, since we're kind of on Jack Nance.
0: I think some of the performances in this are so breathtaking and captivating and just, like, really just, like, unique. You know, there are so many characters that appear on screen, and it's like, who is this? what is this what is their history you know like characters that appear in like one shot and then don't appear in the rest of the film are so memorable you know like one comes to mind is his girlfriend's grandma who sits in the kitchen motionless smoking cigarettes placed in her mouth and mashing potatoes with the mother's assistance like it's it's just everyone has such a weathered face and just a lonely demeanor mm-hmm. and I, I think about like those characters all the time mm-hmm. and it's just like I want to reach out to them and talk to them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that loneliness is definitely conveyed. I think it's also conveyed in how the characters are shot. If they are shot all together, it's like stagnant and they're not really talking to one another. But most of the time, they're shot in singles almost really far away from the frame. Like, I think when the father comes in that one door, and he's, like, way back. It's almost like (laughs) it might be a POV shot from Henry's perspective, but it seems off angle-wise. But it just captures the loneliness of each individual character. Or the grandmother sitting alone in the kitchen in the corner of the frame.
0: They don't even bring her out to have dinner. They just leave her in the kitchen.
1: Yeah, you're right. It's this... Loneliness perpetuated by the society they're living in, mm-hmm. and what
0: a beautifully rendered society! This film was, I believe, primarily shot in Philadelphia. There's a sequence early on, very early on in the film, where Eraserhead is walking through a completely empty and dirt industrial cityscape with puddles. And harsh lighting and fog and just dust rolling about. And the the production design and the interior design is just beautiful. Where there are just giant mounds of dirt on top of furniture. And like, you know, elevators that just don't close. It's just a feast for the eyes. And just,
1: it could just make me cry just thinking about it. It's so wonderful. Interesting. I definitely wouldn't use those adjectives, but I do find all that imagery compelling. It's almost like both of these movies that we've watched are really visually engaging, but in like the exact opposite ways, Just kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, your name is very, uh, a beautiful film and it's what traditional beauty, <laughs> I guess, in terms of like...
1: Don't patronize me.
0: (laughs) Landscapes of sweeping vistas and, you know, beautiful villages and beautiful people. And then Eraserhead is about, you know, hideous things
1: presented in a beautiful way. I think it's hideous things presented in a hideous way. And that's the whole point. I think they work in the frame because David Lynch is a very talented filmmaker. But I don't know. I would... I would describe it more as like visually coherently horrific. <laughs> Maybe not beautiful in the
0: poetic sense, but beautiful in the artistic sense of, you know, like you said, shot yeah. composition and framing and lighting and set design.
1: I'd support that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you wanted to go into? The baby. The baby. How could we not talk about the baby? How do we
0: not talk about the baby? the The baby of a head is portrayed by a puppet? Question mark. I would think so. Yeah. Most likely a puppet of some kind. And wow, like things in black and white have an added veneer to their, you know, the verisimilitude of their reality. It's a film reality. And the practical effects for the baby puppet, whatever it is, are so grotesque. And the black and white nature lends itself to the grotesqueness. Its skin is spotted and like layered and like really sweaty and gross. And at one point it gets sick and it's just disgusting. And it just, the noises it makes are vile. Mm -hmm. And it just like, it I think the film would not work in delivering the terror of fatherhood if not for the quality of this effect.
1: Yeah, and I want to touch on the sound design of not only the baby, but of this movie entirely. I think the everyday sounds are accentuated, especially in the beginning. Wind, the whimpering dogs, the cuckoo clock, it all kind of creates this eerie atmosphere and sets up for the piercing cry of this baby so it tunes our ears to that frequency of like paying attention to seemingly mundane noises and kind of capturing the more agitating aspect of them and i
0: think it's just like the use of the sound design kind of like Is what I was trying to get at before with, like, the terror of everyday life. Yeah, definitely. You know, the terror of living in an urban area where people outside are getting killed. There are industrial sounds ever present. Rain battering against brick. It's an unforgivable, inorganic existence. And the sound design sells the believability of the
1: world. Mm Definitely. Definitely. I love this film. It sounds like you liked it. I liked it quite a bit. I'm excited to rewatch it and more excited to dive into David Lynch's later works.
0: Yes. We started uh, a watch of Twin Peaks recently. Mm Got to get back on that. Definitely. Blue Velvet. I saw this year was amazing. So I might recommend that for a future episode. But that's not what I'm going to do for this coming week. Clayton. Next week, we have a friend coming on.
1: We do. We are starting a series where we're hopefully going to have some guests, and our first guest will be Connor McKee. You will know him as the bassist of Soul Human, great R.A.T. band. Check them out. And after some talking, we decided to do the theme, Obscure. So, Ted, do you remember the movie we talked about you have us nice re- watch? I remember the
0: movie that I was going to recommend, uh, and I'm going to be recommending the Wachowski Sisters 2006 film, Speed Racer. Whoa. It is bonkers. I <laughs> saw this on TV with my friend maybe like two years ago. We were just flipping through the channels, and we were like, what are we watching? This is insane, and it's unforgettable.
1: Mm-hmm. I So people hate on this movie. I remember liking it, but also thinking nothing really of it afterwards. So the main thing I remember is when cars explode. The drivers enter these bubbles and, like, bounce away so they're safe. (laughs) And that's probably my favorite part about the movie in my memory. But I'm excited to revisit it, see if it deserves the hate it gets, or if it is a hidden gem in their filmography. And what are you going to be recommending us? I am recommending Thunderbirds, (laughs) which is a movie I would watch when I was young about children... And their dads are pilots, and each pilot has a number in a specific plane. I don't remember. It's been a while. I remember the movie being flawless. (laughs) Its Metacritic score is bad. It's directed
0: by Jonathan Frakes, who you may know as William Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And he has lamented the failure of this film
1: because he really enjoyed making it. It's awesome. I'm excited to make you guys watch it and discuss it here. (laughs) I think I will be the only one excited about it, but that's okay. And Connor is having us watch Grandmother's Gold, which I think he described as like a fun adventure movie. It's only on YouTube, but uh, we're excited to dive into that with him.
0: Yeah, I uh, really have no idea what to
1: expect from these films, so I'm eager to see what comes of it. I'm excited, so... Stay tuned. Ted, anything you would like to promote?
0: Uh, yes. I have a Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram page called At These Fine Times, where you can find my artwork, schoolwork, my comic called The Smell of Home that I've been working on for the past couple months, and other stuff I do. Yeah. I've
1: promoted it every episode this far. I'm running out of things to say about it. Likewise, I have two other podcasts, Terry Talks Podcast, stories worth sharing. Uh, if you're bored, check them out. I'm tired of promoting them as well. Uh, cool. So we'll see you next week with Connor. Bye. Bye. In heaven, everything is mind uh...